Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is a woman who lives on our street, mine and Hannah's street, and that over the last year and a half, we've got to know her a little bit. I would say she's in her 60s. Did you say 60s? Yeah, something like that. We've not asked her her age. would be a bit rude, I think. Um, she's a true Mancunian. She grew up in just around here in Whitworth Park. <clears throat> she's lived in Manchester, I think, for most of her life. Um, she was widowed a few years ago. Um, she nursed her husband until his death. He died of multiple sclerosis. And she has some quite serious health issues herself. Now, she has family in the area, um, her daughter who comes and visits her. <clears throat> um, but she does live alone. And she has lived on our street for quite a long time, and in that time, she has seen it change. Um, she's seen people come and go. And I think, in some ways, she's struggled to kind of connect with all the, the fast pace of change that has happened around her in her community. Um, I bumped into her at the beginning of the year, maybe, yeah, January, February time. And, we had, and the topic of spiritual things came up in conversation. And she said to me, <clears throat> you know, Jez, I've kept your Christmas card on my mantelpiece. Last year, we, at Christmas, we'd given her a Christmas card. There was advertising a Grace Church service, actually. And it turns out it was one of her favorite cards, but not because of anything that we'd written inside it, um, but because of what was on the cover. Because on the cover, it simply said the word hope. Hope. And she said to me, I like that word hope. We're all looking for hope, aren't we? We're all looking for hope. <clears throat> but sometimes it feels like it's in short supply these days. Particularly when it comes to some of the hardest things we have to deal with as, as people. A particular struggle of our culture, I think, is knowing what to do with death, the subject of death. Last November, Emma Barnett, who presents Newsnight, on BBC, um, BBC Two, I think. Um, she wrote a piece in the Independent newspaper, and she spoke about the loss of her godmother and her old school teacher. Both of them were in, her in their 90s, and they died. And these bereavements hit her really, really hard, particularly that of her godmother. She said that she used to ring her godmother every week, and now she looks at her phone, she can't bear to delete her number from her favorites. She wrote... In this article, I am dumbfounded that the world is still moving without these women in it. How can it be? But it is. She later remarked in the article how she is underprepared for death. 
whether that's her own or others, she said she is woefully and willfully underprepared for death. And of course, as a Christian community, we are not untouched by these realities ourselves. We have to deal with hardship. We have to deal with sorrow. <clears throat> we have to deal um, with death as much as anybody else does. So the question is, what difference does it make for us as Christians? What actual difference does it make being a Christian dealing with these matters? Well, the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Thessalonians, he was writing to people who were grieving. And he wrote particularly of the comfort of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And this wonderful passage that we have reminds us today that we have re real hope. It shows us what it is that we are hoping in. And so we're going to look at it together this morning, and hopefully it's going to be a word for us, something that will encourage us if we are struggling. So the first thing to look at is the possibility of hope. The possibility of hope. <clears throat> if you look down at verse 13, it says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So, Paul is taking time in this letter to speak to the church about Jesus' second coming. And it appears that the church had a lot of confusion about this event, particularly its implications on those amongst their church community who had already died. Now, it's unlikely that the church didn't think those who had died were going to rise again, because that's a standard Christian teaching. Paul definitely would have taught them that whilst he was with them. But rather, there was a, it seems like there's a concern that when Jesus came back, those who were alive when Jesus comes would somehow be more privileged than those who had died, as if those who had already died might miss out in some way, that they'd be some kind of hierarchy of Christians. And this was causing a lot of upset amongst those in the church who were grieving loved ones who had passed on. And so Paul writes to them, and he tells them that he wants them to be informed about the fate of those Christians who had died or in his, his language, had fallen asleep, so that, it says, they will not grieve without hope. A few things I wanted to notice here, straight away. Firstly, Paul is not saying that Christians don't grieve. We do grieve. The other day, I picked up a, a Christian book that had the title, Free to Grieve. Christians are free to grieve. Some people reading this passage have had this funny idea that Christians shouldn't ever be sad or that they can't even mourn or that if they do it, it, it in some way shows that there may be a lack of faith or a lack, lack of spiritual maturity on their part if they are hit hard by the realities of life and death. And it seems to me that such people are trying to be more holy than Jesus. If you read Isaiah 53, it describes Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We read in John's Gospel when he saw um, the effects of Lazarus, his friend who had died, that he wept, he cried. And more than that, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans that we should mourn with those who mourn. Okay, so not only do we grieve our own losses, we actually grieve the losses of others as well. We make them our own so that we can join with others who are hurting in solidarity with them. So Paul is definitely not trying to deny anybody their grief. 
But he does say this, even though we do grieve, Christians grieve different, differently with hope. So there is going to be a qualitative difference to the way that we mourn compared to those who are not Christians. Or to spin it a different way, it is possible in all of our sorrows to have hope. And maybe that's something that some of us today need to know. It is possible to have hope. Where does that hope come from? Well, Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed so that you do not grieve with hope. So these, these Thessalonian Christians are going to get hope when they are informed, informed about the second coming of Jesus. In other words, theology is practical. Our hope is going to increase as we are informed about how Jesus will come back and what that will be like. That's good for us to know, because when it comes to discussion about what Christians sometimes call the end times, the, the, the final days before Jesus returns, there are two errors Christians can fall into. One is to treat the second coming like it's a crossword puzzle to be solved. We try and figure out all the order of the events. We look at prophecies in the Old Testament, perhaps more um, cryptic passages in the book of Revelation. We try and get a timeline together, and we figure it all out, but primarily so we can have the right answers. And the end result in such an endeavor is intellectual satisfaction. The problem is, though, a crossword puzzle doesn't give you hope, does it? It just makes you feel clever if you solve it. But another error, another error, and perhaps as a reaction to the first problem, is that Christians don't pay much attention to the doctrine of Jesus' second return and what the Bible says about it, second coming. Um, you might be the sort of person who thinks that figuring all that out is kind of for Bible nerds like me. Or you may just be too distracted by the cares of life to think about it. But when the hardships of life hit you, when you have to deal with bereavement and sorrow, when you have to deal with the reality of death, how are you going to find hope as a Christian? Paul would say, by being informed. So Paul hasn't just written about the second coming to give PhD theology students something to write a thesis on. He has written it to ordinary Christians like us so that when we are crushed by life, even through tears, we can have hope. That's why he's written it. And so for a Christian, hope is possible, even in the face of death. And we can fuel that hope by looking at and focusing on Jesus' return. Possibility of hope. What's the possibility of it? But what are we grounding our hope on? Secondly, the basis of our hope. And Paul says that that basis is Jesus' death and resurrection. Verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. <clears throat> now, there are two kinds of hope, I think. Um, there's hoping for the best, um, wishful thinking. And, and, and th these are the kinds of times where we hope, but we're not sure that our hopes will be fulfilled. We can hope for good weather, which has been relatively fulfilled recently, but 
You can't always guarantee it. I mean, I can hope that my hairline won't recede further, but let's be honest, guys, I'm not going to put money on it. This kind of hope isn't guaranteed. But there's another kind of hope which knows that what is hoped for will occur. And Paul says this is that kind of hope. And we know it will occur because of Jesus' death and resurrection. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. What's Paul doing here? He's saying that there is a logical set of events in Jesus' life and ministry. That he lived, that he came to earth, that he died, that he rose again, and therefore, because he rose again and ascended into heaven, he will come back. As I've said before to some of our students, this is a really highly sophisticated theological principle of what goes up must come down. According to the Bible, Jesus Christ is in heaven. He rules, sitting at the right hand of his Father. But just because he is in heaven, that doesn't mean he's going to stay there. Heaven is not the final stop. It's not the last destination. Actually, this earth is. He's coming back. And so for Jesus, though he's in heaven, though he's enjoying glory, being in heaven is kind of like a holding pattern. A couple of months ago, I flew to California via Dublin. And when I was flying into Dublin, there was an issue at the airport and the runway so that it wasn't clear. And it meant that our flight couldn't land straight away, so that we were in a holding pattern. We were kind of flying at thousands of feet in the air, kind of circling Dublin Airport before we had the um, clearance to land. And I could look out the window and I could see other planes that were doing the same thing. Now, planes aren't meant to stay in the air. They have only completed their journey when they land. And until then, they're in a holding pattern. And that's the same in some sense, like Jesus. You know, heaven is a glorious place, but Jesus' ultimate destination is the earth. He plans to come back here, renew our world from all its brokenness, and dwell here forever. That's the Bible's teaching. And so, what goes up must come down. We know Jesus has come back. To, we know Jesus will come back because he has died and risen again. Just another thing to pick up in the verse. <clears throat> that line, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, is not typical language of Paul. You know, like, if you're from a, a particular part of the world, there are certain phrases that you use, there are certain words that you use, um, and words that you won't use all the time. So there's an ongoing debate in British culture about what to call a certain type of bread. So some call it a roll, some call it a bap, some call it a balm cake. Okay, now I'm, I'm a roll guy, okay, that's, that's, that's how I say that word. Um, I would never call it a balm cake. I think this is the first time I have publicly used the words balm cake in front of anyone, okay? So I will always use the term roll. And, and just as I use the term roll, the, the, the Greek words that Paul says there in terms of we believe Jesus died and rose again, they contain words that Paul doesn't usually use in the rest of his letters. And so it's thought that he's quoting something. That is, he's quoting a creedal statement. So we think sometimes about the Apostles' Creed. Creeds that say things like, um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We sang, 
I believe that Jesus died and rose again earlier in our singing. And, and creeds are statements that are common to lots of Christians, if not all Christians. So when Paul says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he's using a Christian creed to back up his point. It's like he's saying this, look guys, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring those who have died with him. And that's not just my own take. Isn't, that, isn't this what we say together? We say, don't we? Jesus has died and rose again. We believe that. This is what the entire church holds to. And if that's true, if he rose to heaven, then he will return with our loved ones. And maybe that's helpful for us. In our grief, in our sorrows, in our sadnesses, all sorts of doubts creep into our minds, don't they? Maybe this is all a bit pointless. Maybe Jesus isn't coming back. Maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe the Christian faith is nonsense after all and not worth pursuing. And perhaps one way to combat these doubts is to remind ourselves of what Christians everywhere have held to. Since the early church, we've held fast to the belief that Jesus died and rose again and will come back. These are truths we confess. The apostles believed this. The early church believed this. Christians who were fed to lions in the Roman amphitheater believed this. Today, Christians all over the world whether in luxury or in persecution, believe this. In Africa, in India, in China, all over the globe, we all unite around these truths that Jesus died and rose again. And sometimes it's helpful to remember that. It's not going to get rid of all your doubts, but it might just help you get out of your own head a little bit, give you a bit of confidence. You're not alone. All Christians hold to this. Jesus died and rose again. So we know that he will return. That is the basis of our hope. So we've seen the possibility of our hope, the basis of our hope. Well, let's get stuck into the details then. What, what is our hope? What is its object? And it's this. Jesus' return will reunite his family. Just have a look at verse 15 with me. I'll just take a quick drink of water. So verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, if the confession of the church isn't enough to convince these Thessalonians, Paul goes um, one authority higher, which is Jesus's words himself. We know Jesus is coming back because he has said so. And the implications to the Thessalonians are clear. Christians who are still alive when Jesus returns are not going to proceed or have any advantage over those who have died. They are not going to miss out. And then Paul goes on to describe, just in remarkable terms, what Jesus' return will be like. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So first, Jesus Christ will return to earth himself. He's not going to send a delegation. He's coming himself. There's a trumpet call referred to by Paul. Um, trumpet, trumpet calls in the Bible, they refer to the appearance of God. They're, they're often 
linked to, to when God shows himself, makes himself visible. It's linked with the second coming in multiple places. Jesus makes that link. There will be the voice of an archangel. Archangel is kind of like the boss angel. Um, and it indicates that Jesus won't come alone, but with spiritual beings, the angels that will come with him. But perhaps most striking is that Jesus will come, did you notice, with a cry of command. When Jesus comes, he's not silent. He's giving an order. What is he ordering? Well, it must be linked to the end of the verse where it says that the dead in Christ will rise. Jesus is going to command those Christians who have died to rise from the dead. We read of Jesus in John's Gospel, don't we, with Lazarus. He sees Lazarus in the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And just by the power of his word, Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And we're told here that when Jesus comes back, he will command all the Christian dead to rise and they will do so. From the dust of the earth, the bodies of long dead Christians will be reconstituted. Souls reconnected with their bodies. These people will receive consciousness again. They'll breathe. They'll walk and talk. They'll be themselves. I mean, can you even imagine what that will be like? And to be clear, this is not a metaphor, Jesus' return. I think there's probably poetic language here. Should we expect a, an audible trumpet call? I, I don't know. Um, perhaps that's poetic. But this is a literal event. Christians believe that Jesus Christ will literally return to earth bodily, dramatically, in a way that will be unmistakable to everyone everywhere. It will be an event like the cosmos has never seen. Life as we know it now will end, and a new age will begin. Now, to many in our secular society, that at best seems fanciful, at worst, ridiculous. But this is standard Christian belief. Christianity 101. We believe that Jesus will return bodily to the earth. And he will command the dead to rise. And do you notice in the verse, they will rise first. So the Thessalonians are concerned that their loved ones in the church who had died will miss out. But if anything, they'll get first dibs. There'll be no two-tier Christianity and then look at verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So all Christians then, all those who are alive on earth when Jesus comes back, and all those who have dead but have now risen will come together and they will join Jesus. The Christian family of all ages will be reunited Now, in verse 17, you've got those words caught up. Do you notice those caught up? Which can also be translated snatched. And some Christians um, understand this to refer to an event called the rapture. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of, of that Greek word that means caught up or snatched. And on this understanding, the rapture is an event that's separate to Jesus' second coming. The idea is that there will be a day when every Christian on earth will essentially vanish into thin air and will be caught up into heaven 
because they'll have been raptured to be with Jesus. Um, but this is separate to the second coming. So they will leave the earth, um, and everyone else will be left behind on, on planet earth, and, and it will kind of be chaos um, for a period of time, normally about seven years, until Jesus comes back. And, and there are lots of scriptural references that are, that are kind of used to, to make that viewpoint. And, um, and if you've ever come across the books Left Behind, that was a, a series of um, kind of Christian fantasy books that were written. Um, it, it dramatizes how the rapture will happen, and it's kind of chaotic. So, you know, you can imagine Christians are zapped out from um, their cars. There are loads of, like, car crashes. Christian pilots are raptured, and the planes fall out of the sky because there's no one to to pilot them. Um, it'll be a, a really dramatic event. Now, Christians disagree over whether the rapture will be like that or whether it's a part of Jesus' second coming or not. Um, Christians have always disagreed about the exact order of events. Now, we're all agreed on the important things, which is that Jesus is literally coming back, and he will come to judge the world and usher in the new creation. Everyone is agreed on that. But there are differences of opinion in the details. And I'm sure here at Grace Church, there'll be various views um, that are represented by those of us here. And that's okay. We don't have an official position on this. um, And we can hold different views with charity and generosity and humility. Now, personally, I don't think this passage teaches the rapture, as it's commonly understood. Um, And if you disagree with me, that's okay. I hope we can still be friends. I, I don't think that this is relating, referring to an event that's separate to Jesus' second coming. I think it's all together. The, the flow of the passage talks about the very public nature, the trumpet call, the archangel. I think this is something that is public, um, not a secret kind of rapture of, of, of Christians leaving the, the earth back as it is. And I think there's an important detail that helps us understand this, particularly this idea of meeting the Lord in the air. And it is that word meet in verse 17. Now, this doesn't simply refer to a casual meeting, like I'll meet you in the pub after work. Um, It's a technical term, which refers to the custom of formal receptions in the Greek and Roman world. Let me explain. So if you were an important person in the Greek or Roman world, and you were going to visit a city, it was a custom for you to be greeted by some prominent citizens in the city. Okay, so they might send out the priests or soldiers or some teachers or athletes. And they would come out to meet you, but then they would escort you on your, the final leg of the journey into the city. So they kind of be an entourage for you as you get to walk into the city with all of these people. Okay? So if you imagine it's the custom today, right? Imagine the queen is going to come and visit Manchester. Her driver's got her coming down the M56, and about to go into Princess Road, and we decide that when she hits about Didsbury, Withington, we're going to send out the best of Manchester to go and meet her. So Andy Burnham goes out. Uh, we send out some NHS workers, maybe the cast of Coronation Street, I don't know. Um, they go and meet her. And then together, everyone journeys into the city center. That's, that is, it's a formal reception. That's what that word meet means. And so what Paul is describing here in this passage is all Christians going to meet Jesus, but as it were, escort him back to the earth. So this is not an event separate to the second coming. This is the second coming, where all believers are gathered together. 
and escort Jesus and welcome him as he returns. Okay, technical discussion aside. Let's get down to earth, as it were, now. How will all of this give hope to the Thessalonians and to us? Let's think about that word caught up again, which is also translated snatched. In the ancient world, the word snatched was used to describe how death tears families apart. It would appear in funeral inscriptions. So the Roman emperor Augustus, he speaks about his two adopted sons, Gaius and Lucius, who died early deaths. And he refers to them as my sons, who as youths were snatched from me by fortune. The Greek writer Lucian portrays a grieving father talking about his dead son. Dearest child, you are gone from me, dead, snatched away before your time, leaving me behind, alone and wretched. You know, back then, just as now, bereavement is like a, it's like you've been robbed. A loved one has been stolen from us. It's so hard. And yet in the context of that, Paul says to these Thessalonians, you know, one day there is going to be another snatching. But it's not going to be a snatching where people are torn apart from each other. The Lord is going to snatch the Christian church together. People are going to be reunited. All Christians, past, present, and future, will be brought together. The dead will be raised. And all of us will stand shoulder to shoulder to welcome Jesus home. That is the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the ultimate sign of the hope is at the end of the verse. And we will be with the Lord forever. If you think about this whole kind of formal reception thing, you know, celebrities coming to meet you and escort you into the city, it, it could be seen from a cynical point of view as just a bit of an ego boost, couldn't it? You know, a way to make insecure leaders feel proud and important. But that is not what it is for Jesus. Okay, Jesus is important enough as it is, um, regardless of me or you. The Son of God does not need us to clap for him. He is perfectly happy and self-sufficient in and of himself. We do not add to his self-esteem. But nevertheless, this formal reception is an answer to one of Jesus' prayers. In John's Gospel, there is a record of him speaking to his father in chapter 17. And he prays to his father whilst, before he's going to go to the cross. And he prays, and he prays about us, essentially. And he says this, it's on the screen. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Jesus wants every Christian to be with him. And his second coming will be the final answer to that prayer. His desire is to reunite his family. All of his brothers and sisters, he wants to gather them to himself. 
so that we might enjoy his company with him. And that includes, Christian friend, you personally. It's as if he says to you today, Christian brother or sister, if you are grieving, do not lose hope. One day I am coming back for you and I want you to be with me. And the Christian family that has been separated by death, I'm going to undo that and bring everybody together. It's a beautiful thing. And that is how we can grieve with hope. Because this great family reunion is going to happen one day. Jesus will return and he will draw us to himself and he will delight in that. He looks forward to it even now. And so finally, what's our job in the meantime? Verse 18, encourage each other with these words. We are always going to have sorrow and grief in this life. So we need to keep in mind Jesus' second coming. We need to keep it in the forefront of our minds. This glorious future, eternity, new creation, life without end, no pain, presence with Jesus. We need to remember this and we need to help each other remember this through our tears through our difficulties. Wouldn't it be great if part of the culture of this church was conversation about these things, talking to each other, reminding each other about them? Not in a way that treats it like a crossword, but as a way of giving strength to believers who are weary. And for those of us who who are grieving lost friends, lost family, lost little ones, those in Christ will be gathered to us again. We will stand shoulder to shoulder with them and we will welcome Christ when he comes back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed to see what it is you have in store it's hardly imaginable, imaginable to us at the moment. We, we live life day in, day out. It all seems very normal. And yet one day, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And he will gather us as his family. And we will be with him forever. Oh Lord, please help us to remember that. Please help us to encourage each other with that glorious truth. For those of us who are hurting today, Lord, for those of us who are grieving, for those of us who are sad and sorrowful, may that be a truth that comforts us, that gives us strength. And may we have an eye for those who are hurting, that we may encourage them with these words as you have given them to us. Thank you, Lord, that we do not grieve without hope. We do grieve, but there is also hope. And we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we long for the day when we get to see you and you will make all things right. We pray you'd bring that day soon. In your name we pray. Amen.